0: Heads up that this episode includes explicit descriptions of physical and sexual violence that may be upsetting to some listeners or inappropriate for young ears.
1: When I was younger, the only way I knew to deal with things was to be like a fighter. It didn't take a whole lot for me to just snap. But once I initially had my first fight, And seeing that I could win a fight, then I was like, that's my go-to. And I mean, it didn't take anything. The wind could blow hard. You could step on my Nikes and and you could go to the emergency room that day. I was was just that
0: angry. I'm Eva Tenuto, the co-founder and executive director of TMI Project, a nonprofit storytelling organization based in Kingston, New York, Over the last 10 years, we've collected nearly 2,000 true stories.
2: And I'm Micah, a workshop facilitator for TMI Project. In alignment with the Black Lives Matter movement, the theme of Season 2 is Black Stories Matter. We are amplifying the voices of Black storytellers who got on stage and shared their stories of joy, pain, and resilience. All of the Black Stories Matter workshops were led by myself and my co-workshop leader, Daryl Lurie will be our guest co-host for this season. You'll get to meet Dara in the next episode.
0: In the first episode of season two, we're featuring one of my heroes. And also one of my heroes. Jessica McNabb. How much time we got? Do
1: I got time to make a quick phone
0: call? Here in Kingston, Jessica McNabb is kind of an icon. Oh,
1: for a pound boy. Oh my God. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh. Everybody knows her because for 10 years she worked at Stewart's, a local convenience store and gas station. When Jessica is behind the counter, you'll find her customers, or as she calls them, her fans, standing there in awe, hungry for more jokes.
1: I'm an equal opportunity buster. That's what I do.
0: Stop in and buy a quart of milk and a lotto ticket. Stay for the free comedy. Because Jessica is also a stand-up comedian and a storyteller.
1: When I was a younger kid, just up to like five, six, seven, eight, I was uh, very timid and very reserved, if you can imagine that. So my mom's best friend, her daughter, who was probably 20 pounds lighter than me, used to whoop my ass every time she saw me. She just beat me up for no reason. She was just a mean kid. My mother would whoop my ass again and send me outside and be like, when you learn to fight back, she'll stop whooping your ass.
2: Jessica grew up in a large, loving, and sometimes rowdy family. Three sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, and friends who felt like family, too. Her loving, charismatic mom, Cheryl, was at the epicenter.
1: You know, my mom used to throw huge, huge parties 2 300 people, and maybe a 100 of them would be kids <laughs> at a barbecue at our house.
2: She taught Jessica to stay loyal to her family, to love herself, and above all, not to take shit from anybody.
1: I think I was like six, and uh, my uncle and my aunt were getting married at our house in High Falls in the front yard. That was a, a great day that I' seen them like hanging out and, and laughing and I think that's the first time I ever remember seeing my dad and my mom like uh, kiss each other. My dad was a handsome devil now. He sometimes he had like a, a, a crop little afro, but he had the like the pork chop Elvis-like sideburns like he was 6'4", he was 5'11". He had a third grade education. He worked his life and had things that no black man should have had in the early 70s. He bought a house in a white neighborhood. He had a wife, he had kids, they had cars, they had everything that all the white people around us had. They were only physically together uh, living in the same house until I was nine. Like, I didn't know that there was anything going wrong until we were moving. I was like, what happened? I mean, what's going on? And then it was still stay out of grown folks' business. So it wasn't like I got an explanation of, you know, why they split up or... I mean, she still doesn't explain a lot of it to this day. She was like, you know, she married when she was young. She was, you know, she was 15 years old when she married my dad. And um, he was 23, 22,
2: 23. So... She's nine, and her father, who she so clearly adores and looks up to, is suddenly gone. She's angry, she's confused, and like any kid would, she needs an outlet. So remember that girl? Mom's best friend's daughter? The next time she came around, Jessica was ready for her.
1: We were at the house, and we were having this big barbecue, and all my uncles and aunts and stuff were there too. So when, the, when she came to me, like she always would, my uncle looked at me and he was like, okay, so today is your day. We fought on Clinton Avenue for like a square block. Like we were underneath the car fighting. We were in traffic fighting. This was like a half hour fight. I thought I was gonna be like in trouble because she was jacked up. I mean, she was ragged. She was bleeding. She was holding her eyes. She was holding her ass. I think my shoe was stuck in her ass. I don't know. And she never, ever tried to fight me again. And when we were in eighth grade, she tried to say something slick to me in the hallway in high school. And I was like, did you forget who I am? You forget who I am? You want some more of that? You want some more of that? It was like, yeah, nah. We don't want no more of that.
2: <laughs> After Jessica moved away from her dad, he was still a big part of her life. And they saw each other as often as possible. It was a good relationship.
1: I can remember watching like TV and Star Trek and all the old wrestling and uh, help him out with his fish tanks and clean those. And he would show me, I would say, all the quote unquote boy stuff. Like when I turned 13, he's like, come outside, I want to show you something. And he was like, this is how you rotate your tires on your car in your driveway. (laughs) And that's what he showed me. In like 1985 or something like that, somebody mugged him on Broadway in Kingston and stabbed him in his stomach. And he was uh, hemophiliac. Like, right away, they had to start pumping him with blood. But at this time, it was before they started testing the blood. And, you know, that was the 80s. AIDS was on the rise, and they didn't have a grip on it, and they couldn't, you know, really control it. They didn't have any medication to slow it down. It was just, if you got that, that was just... A death sentence. It it evolved pretty quickly from uh, HIV positive to AIDS. We kept him home as long as as we could keep him home, and then he was in the hospital probably like the last three weeks or so of his life. Passed away almost a year after I graduated, and um, you know you're dealing with the grief of that. I felt cheated because I didn't get to go to that next level with him. And I was just like a a ticking time bomb, waiting to explode. The last fight, physical fight that I got into, I think I was uh, 21, no, I wasn't 21, I was 20. It was a year to the day that my dad had passed away. I mean, my friend just went out, she had took me out for the day, and you know, we had went to the cemetery and all that stuff, and she was like, let's go have a drink and play some pool. And I was like, all right. I was dating this guy then, and he was dating some other chick behind my back. And I walked in the bar, and this chick had my coat on. And he was like, Yeah, you finally found, I finally found the match. You can't kick everybody's ass. So you're gonna talk shit today. She's gonna beat your ass, and blah, blah, blah. And look, I took a a look at this girl, and I'm not saying a white girl just because a white girl, but she was a huge white girl. She looked like she had just stepped out of Gold's gym like muscles ripped now the bar spells out and they're like oh come on cat fight cat fight cat fight and when she came at me she was she was just like talking trying to make me hit her first and then she called me the dreaded n-word and then all bets are off after that i just hit her in her face and she grabbed her face and i seen the blood coming from between her fingers and I was like, oh, yeah." I had been in a lot of fights where I just kind of had like uh, blackout moments. And then I would come out and they'd be like, yo, you tore her up. Da da And I really wouldn't remember what happened. But this fight that I got into with her, it was, it's still like clear as day. It plays like a movie in my head still. And it was very calculated. And, and what I was doing, I meant to do like I really meant to like punish her. And I could feel like the more I hit her, the the more of a release I started feeling. The last blow that I struck to her, I kicked her in her face with some steel-toed boots on. A little bit longer and I I probably could have killed her. And I saw my friend, one of my very best friends, look at me in a way like she didn't even know who I was. At that moment, I really decided that that was not the type of person that I wanted to be and let me let go of the violent part mm-hmm. and have to figure out a different way to channel my anger. And that that was it. And that was it, right? That was it. And no more fame. I mean, don't get me wrong. I had to slap up a couple people every now and again, but, you know. <laughs> they just little slaps, you know. Just a little bitch slap, little pimp hand on them.
0: But I don't beat nobody's ass no more. <laughs> a couple of decades later, I met Jessica at Stewart's the convenience store where she worked. A lot had happened in those intervening years. First, she came out to her family and her community.
1: I was a a Black woman coming from a religious family, and they just weren't having that. You couldn't talk about it. I knew people in my family that were, but it was just an unspoken word, and no one ever said anything. And I knew from a, a young age that I had interest in, in women because I was just looking at that Jet Magazine centerfold just a little too long.
0: <laughs> you know, why is that interesting to me? And after turning away from organized religion as a kid, she had a spiritual awakening on her own terms when she was baptized in the ocean near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina.
1: And when he dipped me down into the water, I felt like everything went like slow motion. like. I didn't feel like I was running out of air, but I felt like he had me under the water for like a long time. I could imagine my mom being pregnant with me with all the fluid around me. That's kind of what it made me feel like. So when he pulled me out of the water, I was just like, you know, with that breath. He looks me right in my eyes and he was like, yeah, I think I better dunk you again. And he puts me back down into the water again. And I came up and it was just, it was like an over. Emotion Like I was beside myself crying like I was crawling out of the water on my hands and knees Like I like I'm talking about it right now and I get (laughs) I get choked up now talking about it because that's what it was It was just it freed me from so many things that I carried around for so so long
0: So there she was at Stewart's born again in many ways in accepting herself and her sexuality in her faith in God and her commitment to love and nonviolence, but still hilarious, unfiltered, and holding court for her legions of fans. This was also right around the time that I started TMI Project with Julie Novak. We kept bugging Jessica to come take a writing workshop because she was obviously born to have a mic in her hand. She agreed, but honestly, I had no idea what she was about to unearth.
1: That first workshop that I took, was a fight against myself to write what wanted to come out, but I didn't want it to come out. Like, I didn't want, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's like I, I wanted to do it, but then I just had an issue with being that vulnerable. Just a lot of things that had been building up uh, over the years, things that I couldn't talk about or, you know, tell anyone about there was a a quote-unquote cousin. It just started like really simple, like sit on my lap and eight, nine, maybe even seven. It got to the point where he would be like, he's gonna take me to the store, and then he would take me over to the other cousin's house, like in the basement, and you know, he was stupid. He tried to convince me that he loved me and that this is how he showed it, and She's just an asshole. She's just a pervert. I felt like there was a possibility that I did something wrong or, you know, you never know. You're a kid.
0: She kept pushing herself to write through some of her most painful memories. And once those floodgates opened, there was no stopping her. It was like a, a, a crackhead taking the first hit of crack. I was addicted. And in writing about rage, she made a connection to the way that she learned to channel it productively through a twist in her career path after that last fight when she was 20 years old. She became a butcher.
1: I had no idea that it would have that type of effect on me, like being able to like cut stuff and it bleed and there was nobody there with handcuffs to take me to jail. So uh, I would like overcut the case all the time. They'd be like, you're cutting too much meat. You're cutting too much meat. I was like, well, I got a lot of problems today. I I got some stuff to get off my chest today.
0: She performed her first monologue with us in 2015.
1: When I get a job at Kroger's, a supermarket, I'm filled with anger. Sometimes what I do with my anger scares me. I get into fights. I once nearly killed someone. Luckily, this job takes the edge off a little. I like working with food, and I love when I have the opportunity to learn something new. Every day I come to work, I can't wait to cut meat. My mind wanders to how angry I've been since I was nine years old when we packed up and moved away from my dad. I cut, and I feel as if I'm cutting away my anger. I slam the meat on the counter, trim the fat, pick it up, turn it over. Cutting meat is like body slamming the person I'm thinking of. I think about all the different men that violated me. Precise cutting. Take that bastard. Then a deep cut. How's that feel?
0: <laughs> I
1: almost feel like crying. <laughs> as I finish this soulful cleanse. That's supposed to be serious, y'all.
2: <laughs> Two years later. Jessica and 11 other storytellers, including myself, took the stage to share our experiences as black people in America. It's important to set the context. Kingston is not a town that RSVPs for much of anything, and many of our events are free to the public, so we didn't know how many people would come for Black Stories Matter. But on the night of the performance, we were sold out, a standing room crowd of more than 600 people. The crowd was kind of electrified when Jessica swaggered onto the stage that night. She had these long locks that she's been growing for years. When she works, she keeps them up in a visor. But on the night of the performance, she had them down. Here's Jessica reading her full monologue at Point of Praise Family Center. Oh, What's up?
1: Some of you may know me. A couple of y'all. I do stand-up routines 40 hours a week from behind-the-counter at the store where I work. (laughs) The other day I'm at work, and this elderly white lady comes up to the register, and I say, hey there, young lady. How are you today? (laughs) You're too kind calling me a young lady? Damn, I'm good. She's already charmed. Oh, you're not just a young lady. You're a beautiful young lady. And you look like you just came from the salon. Your hair is fabulous. I know I'm laying it on, but come on. There's nothing wrong with making an old lady feel good while she's buying her eggs. She says to me, I really like your hat. By this time, one of my regulars, or as I like to call them, my fans, <laughs> joined us at the register. You mean my visor, I ask? You like this old thing? I hate wearing it. Honestly, it drives me crazy. It takes me a good 20 minutes to get my locks in that thing every day. She says, no the hat on your head. (laughs) Now my first thought, (laughs) I know this old raggedy chick (laughs) ain't talking about my hair. (laughs) But I contain myself. And I say calmly, oh, you like my hair? She says, surely you jest. (laughs) That's not your hair. My thought, I know this mother. (laughs) (laughs) It's not telling me my own hair. Is not my hair. <laughs> However, I say, I don't jest. It surely is my mother. <laughs> By now, the other customers, other customers in on a conversation. No, really? It's her hair. Cool, right? The lady chuckles and has a sarcastic, oh, really, look on her face. I say, no, really, it's my hair. I lean over the counter, I bring my ponytail down to her, go ahead, pull it, it's really my hair. Oh, I can't do that, no, please do. (laughs) She pulls my hair a bit, see, I told you, I say, glad that this ridiculous debate about whether my own hair is actually, my own hair is over. But when I look up at her, she has this look on her face, as she still doesn't believe me. People aren't able to grow your hair that long. Must be a wig of some sort. Now, and Lord forgive me, she has poked my inner black bitch. What in the ham sandwich does this she mean by you people? I do what I've taught myself to do. I take a deep breath, but I can't help but to think about the way I would have handled this when I was younger. As a young woman, the devil was always ahead of me. I always had a knee-jerk reaction and said the first thing that came to mind. Back then, I didn't know I was combating fear with fear. Growing up, from kindergarten to fourth grade, I am one of the only, if not the only black person in the school, and there are lots of kids that never let me forget that on a daily basis. My first day of school, I'm sent home for fighting a boy after he pulls my hair and calls me blackie. That's just the beginning. There isn't very much protection from the teachers or staff. I'm told to just ignore them. However, that doesn't seem to help. So I start asking my uncle to teach me to fight. With very little training, I'm ready. I figure if they won't stop, I will make them stop. I will never forget this day as long as I live. I'm in fourth grade. Five boys in my class surround me on the playground. They're pushing me around and calling me names. Hey Coon, hey Blackie, hey nigger, why don't you go back to Africa? I'm so terrified. Please stop hurting me. I beg them to leave me alone. I try to run and call for help, but no one hears me. I feel trapped. These these boys are really going to hurt me. Then I remember what my uncle said grab the biggest one, and go crazy. (laughs) That way the smaller ones will get scared and back off. (laughs) Serious shit. So when the biggest kid spits on me and pushes me down, I come up swinging. A punch straight to the throat. When the other boys see their friend is hurt, all of a sudden, no one's laughing anymore. Everyone is in attack mode. I feel as if I turned into a tornado. I'm punching and kicking one by one. They feel my wrath. Who's the nigga now? Who's the nigga now? Who you gonna beat down? I hate all of you crackers. Now I'm crying and screaming and fighting. Oh, now the teacher wants to come help. She screams at me, stop it, Jess, stop it, get off of him. Get off of him? What about get them off of me? Where were you when they were terrorizing me? They started it. To the principal's office we go. The boys have to make a pit stop at the nurse's office to get fixed up. Now they call the parents into the school. I can hear my mother in the office with the principal. Now, just so you understand, my mother's about 24 years old, married with me, a five-year-old, and three-year-old unexpected twins. She don't play. <laughs> I can hear her talking. Let me get this right. You wanna suspend my daughter for beating up five boys who attacked her, and because she kicked their butts, she's in trouble? Oh no, it's not happening like this. These other parents should teach their kids better. If they don't want to be hit, they shouldn't hit anyone. Another parent chimes in. I have to take my son to the emergency room. He's in severe pain, and his friends are all bruised and battered. Well, my mom replies, you should have taught your son to keep his hands to himself. My daughter was protecting herself, which is something the school should have done. How did it get this far without anyone noticing? These kids got what they deserved. I bet they won't try this crap again. And if they do, I will let my daughter know to protect herself again, since apparently no one here will. <clears throat> As I get older, I find another way to combat racism. I find that if I keep control of my inner black bitch, (laughs) I could finally get ahead of the devil. When I come in contact with someone with a slick comment or racial undertones, I try to fight it with an open heart and a sense of humor while I still stand my ground. You people aren't able to grow your hair that long, must be a wig of some sort. I look at this old lady, I'm going to get ahead of the devil. But as long as it took me to grow these locks, I'm going to have to show this woman. So I pull off my visor and I take out my hair ties and I start whipping my hair around like a headbanging rock star. think these are real? Take a good look now. I lay my locks across the counter like a blanket. Get a handful now and tell me it's a wig. Oh my. She leaves the store in a hurry. She may have been a little overwhelmed, but I didn't leave her bruised and battered. Now, I understand this method is not for everyone. (laughs) In this day and age of racial profiling and senseless killing of people of color, I can understand people's frustration. But I believe strongly that we as a people need to dig deep and embrace humanity. We have to work to see each individual person and not just be consumed by the color of someone's skin. I'm done fighting fear with fear, and combating hate with hate. At the same time, I could understand people wanting to fight back, like that nine-year-old girl who felt like she was fighting for her life.
2: You've been listening to the first episode in our second series of the TMI Project podcast, Black Stories Matter. And the truth is that we started producing this episode another time before COVID-19, before the collective unprecedented national outcry over the senseless murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. So we couldn't end this episode without a postscript. Back in May, Jessica attended a Black Lives Matter event in Kingston, it was an extraordinary day. In a town of 23,000, there were well over 1,000 people. We all gathered in an academy green, which is a park in the middle of town. There are several local activists taking turns at the microphones, calls for action.
0: Love is stronger than fear and hate, and black lives matter. Thank you. Ironically, the speakers are positioned in front of towering statues of Peter Stuyvesant, Henry Hudson, and Governor George Clinton, three stark reminders of hundreds of years of white male supremacy and intolerance. Even though Jessica wasn't scheduled to speak that day, she starts moving through the crowd, heading toward the stage.
2: Just that morning, her young nephew confessed to her that he didn't want to go to the rally at all. With everything in the news and all the violence against black people, he's been afraid he's going to be killed. Jessica said later, It was too much. He's a sweet 10 year old who really just likes being a kid. And after listening to all those speeches, something moved on my soul,
0: and I couldn't hold it in anymore. She climbs on stage and asks for the microphone.
1: My heart is breaking! Because we had to have a discussion with my 10 year old nephew to let him know that he can be safe, that people are here to protect him. That is a ridiculous conversation to have with a 10 year old kid. They are stealing our youth's innocence. They are stealing their childhood, for being forced to grow up in a situation like this. I know we want a task force to hold the police accountable, but I am listening to the words of my grandmother. You must take care of home first. And they need to hold each other accountable. If you are not a bad police officer, hold your colleague accountable. Do not stand there and watch them do what they do. And if you are not holding your colleagues accountable, you are just as guilty. I am so glad to see the rainbow of colors here today because this is what we need. It can't be just us fighting this fight. We've been fighting this fight for over 400 years. And I don't care why you're here to fight, as long as you're here to fight in solidarity, for equality, for all. I'm not asking for a leg up. I'm asking for the playing field to be even and equal. So we all have the same opportunities. We all have the same education. We all have the same resources to tap into. It is twenty twenty. I'm tired of hearing about the first black this and the first black death. No justice. No justice. No justice.
2: justice. Thank you, Jessica, for always showing up so powerfully.
0: We love you so much.
2: This episode was written, edited, and produced by Helly Downs and mixed by Marlon Barry. Our Director of External Affairs is Sarah DeRose. The Operations Manager is Blake File. Shante Howell is the publicist for this season of the podcast. And Clarissa Marie Ligon is our Black Stories Matter Virtual Workshop Manager. Lauren Gill is our Graphic Designer and Webmaster. This podcast is co-produced by Radio Kingston. Special thanks to Ida Hakala, Nate Brogan, Kel Kapushilin, Jimmy Buff, and North Guild Productions. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods, with additional composition by Marlon Barry and Maxime Mostin.
0: Here's the part where we ask for your help. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. TMI Project is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners. Help us continue to create radically true stories that have the power to change the world. Make a donation today tmiproject.org.